It is a treat to be here. I am so glad the schedule worked out for this to happen. It seems providential uh, with Rand getting sick uh, or getting, um, or possibly, I don't know, I don't know if that's for sure. Nina and I uh, did that particular odyssey a few weeks ago. It's quite exciting. Um, yeah, hoping that everybody who is out is on the mend and hopefully we'll be uh, back in church, hopefully next Sunday or the Sunday after that. We are, uh, my wife is here, she rarely gets to travel with me, but this is a treat, so she uh, was able to make the drive up from San Diego, and just great to see a church of one of the Radius students. I travel quite a bit, and occasionally I get to see the churches that our students come from, and am always encouraged by the body that is sending them, and this is, and it's something that we're going to get into in the message, this is a church endeavor. This isn't Ruthie's thing, this isn't some fad that some people are on. This is, this is the task that God has given the church. And so to have one of your members uh, being sent out and what glory the king will receive through that someday by his good grace, uh, that, that's an incredible thing. So um, I'm just going to give you a little bit of my own background, and then that way when I tell stories or talk about things and when we get into our passage today, you kind of have some, uh, some way to shape that. So my wife and I met at uh, a small Christian college down in San Diego. It was called Christian Heritage back then. Now it's called San Diego Christian College. It was David Jeremiah's school at that time. Um, I won't get into our dating story. She was dating another guy. We had to make sure that he rode off into the sunset before uh, we could start dating. Uh, but he rode off into the sunset. We ended up getting married, and we had no great burning desire to go into missions. I was an accounting major, and I ended up uh, working my way up through the accounting ranks of a particular organization and eventually was the CFO of a Dutch multinational company. So I worked over in the Netherlands, a little bit in France, a little bit in Germany. And through this time, we never got a missionary call. We never saw like Papua New Guinea and the stars or anything like that, or came out of the beach and were like, oh, it's in the sand, we should go. Um, we read our Bibles and we believed what it said. And based off of that, we went into missions. And I was shocked when I went over to the field of Papua New Guinea and we would have an annual conference where all the missionaries from that region would come and we would gather and one of the, we do some questions for everybody. And one question one year was, how many of you got a missionary call? And of the 247 that were there, zero. They read their Bibles, they believed what it said, and they said, I'll go. I'll be one of the goers. And so I'm, I'm always convicted when I meet a crowd like you guys. And you're a young church. A lot of you guys are in the prime of your life. You could be goers. And to not be looking for this mystical call, the missionary call that is so often kind of talked about, uh, but to read your Bibles and see what your church leadership says, hey, we could see you doing this. That, that's really where most people get their call to go into missions. And so that was the case with us. Uh, we went and we got two years of training. And then we headed to the field of Papua New Guinea. As Ruth said, I had some background there, having grown up uh, in the country, but it had been many years and I had been uh, doing other things. And so went back in and through a process, we ended up with the Yembi Yembi people. Uh, they had been writing letters for seven years saying, send us someone 
who will bring the medicine that we've heard. And so we, they saw another tribe where missionaries landed and their babies stopped dying in as great a number. Could you send someone to do that for us? Could you send someone who knows this talk because they'd seen what happened when the gospel came to this other people group and the changes that happened. They didn't know what it was, but they wanted that. And so seven years, they patiently wrote some letters and um, we were looking to go. There were six tribes that had been asking for five years or more. They didn't make the list unless they'd been asking for five consecutive years. And so Yembi was one of them. We moved in among them. Uh, we built our houses. Then we had to build an airfield. Uh, so you're hacking down jungle trees, uh, building a place for an airplane to land and bring supplies in. And then we started learning their language. Uh, that was probably the most challenging thing. And that's why we spend so much time at, on uh, language acquisition at Radius to learn to communicate clearly so you're not an outsider. North Americans typically don't learn languages that well. They always have accents. They sound like North Americans even when they're overseas. And so to teach someone how to learn a language and to learn it fluently so that the gospel sounds like an insider. And so it took us two years to do that. Um, we got adopted into clans. So they, <clears throat> when we moved in, uh, there's four clans in Yembiembi. There's the ostrich clan, the eagle clan, the black cockatoos, and the toucans. They're all birds. And so when we moved in, uh, they looked at me, and I've got long legs. I played uh, basketball in college, and so my nose is a little bit crooked from a few elbows. And they said, yeah, you're definitely in the ostrich clan. So they put me in the ostrich clan. Uh, my wife's got long blonde hair, so they put her in the eagle clan. And then we had two other families that moved in with us, and they put them in other clans. And then uh, they came to us one night, uh, the men did. And what happens in Yembi Yembi, a boy changes into a man when he kills a pig at night, a wild boar. Boars get really big over there. Uh, a boar with a spear by himself. When he kills a pig at night with a spear by himself, then he changes into a man. And you're always a boy until you do that. And so they came and asked us if we'd done that. And uh, we were like, nah, never done that. And they said, okay. And so they, <clears throat> they came up with a name for us because somehow we had been allowed to marry and we'd fathered children, but we were still boys in the Yembi frame of life. And so they came up with a name for us and they called us overgrown boys because we were these large bodied guys who somehow hadn't killed a boar yet and we'd been allowed to marry. And so we had to learn how to hunt and we had to learn how to sneak through the jungle at night with a spear and kill a boar for the first time. And we didn't do it because we're into hunting. I'm, we're not adventurous. Like if you ask Nina and I, we're into sushi, smog. Um, we, we don't go camping. That's not us. We're, we're city people. But we do all these things so that when the gospel comes someday, it comes from an insider. It comes from someone that they recognize. And there, there's a model in Scripture. If you look at the life of Jesus, Jesus didn't parachute in as a 27-year-old. He came as a baby, and he learned the language of the people that he was coming to. He ate their food. He knew their customs. The local Israelites, the ones from his part of the wood, they, they knew, okay, they were, those are his brothers and sisters. He's the carpenter's son. He was a known commodity. And for missionaries, effective missionaries, to know the culture, to know the people, to, to eat their food, to hunt their pigs, to do the things that those people do, so that when the gospel comes, it comes with that power. And so that's a lot of what we train at Radius, and that's what we ended up doing in Yembi And finally, after two and a half years of going through a lot of cultural adjustments, 
understanding their culture, learning their language, uh, we finally started presenting the gospel. And we didn't start in Romans, we didn't start in Matthew, we started in Genesis 1-1. And to pit the Yembi Yembi worldview against the biblical worldview. They didn't have an alphabet when we moved in, so we had to develop an alphabet for them. Then we had to teach them how to read and write in their own language. Then we had to translate the scriptures into their language to stay ahead. So it wasn't our word against their ancestors' word. It was the God of this book against what their ancestors say. You choose one. One is true, one is false. But to present all of that, the work that went into that prior was so long, but it presented this opportunity. And so the day we started teaching, uh, the whole village turned out. And there's about a thousand people in the Yembe village. And the Yembe's aren't like uh, North Americans. The Yembies, if they like what you're saying, they'll yell from anywhere at any time. They'll, they'll yell in the back and they'll say, keep talking, keep talking, this talk is good to my belly. The belly is the seat of the emotions. In America, it's the heart. My heart is broken, my heart is full, that kind of thing. The Yembies, it's the belly. If they don't like what you're saying, they'll yell from anywhere, shut your mouth, this talk is gonna make me throw up, because again, it's coming from their belly. And so, they'll, so you know exactly when you're teaching if you're doing a good job or you're doing a bad job. You're flying or dying, one or the other, but they're going to let you know. So we start teaching, and we're walking through this God who is so different from their gods. One of the misconceptions is you're teaching to blank slates. Not true. They have answers for where people go when they die. They have answers for where sickness comes from. How come crops fail? How come crops do well? How come this family has five children and this family has none? They have those answers. And to present this God who is so different from their gods, to lay out all the Yembi foods when we're walking through creation and how God creates such incredible variety. The Yembis have 17 different kinds of sago. They have 15 different kinds of bananas. And then they had foods that they'd never seen. We flew in foods from Australia because Papua New Guinea is really close to Australia. We flew in oranges and apples, never seen them in their life. Cut them up into as many small pieces as possible, laid them out on a table. Everybody got to taste them for the first time. Does God eat food? This God of the book, does he eat food? No. Why did he make such incredible variety? Because he loved you. He loves me. This is the God that we're talking about. This is his character. This is what he's like. And to see the Yembis falling in love with this God before they even knew the full narrative of what he would do for them. And we teach and we keep going and I don't have time to get into it, but the hinge point of humanity, Genesis chapter 3. Man, if you don't know Genesis chapter 3, if Genesis chapter 3, the fall of mankind isn't pivotal in the gospel presentation, there's something that is missing in the Yembe seeing when Eve and Adam take the fruit and eat it for the first time. We would act things out. We would teach and then we would act it out because they're concrete learners. They'd never sat in formal education before. And so when we would act things out, we're acting out... Uh, <clears throat> Eve eating the fruit, and I'm Satan, I've got a black bed sheet on, and my coworker's wife was Eve, and as we're walking around, and I'm whispering to her, whispering loud enough for a thousand people to hear, Eve, Eve, just eat the fruit, and your eyes will be open, and you'll be just like God, and the Yembies, these are unsaved people still, so they're yelling at her, they're cursing her like crazy, look at your belly, you silly lady, look at your belly, where did all that food come from? This God is so good to you, now you're going to turn your back, she's reaching out for the fruit, and some of them get up, and they're pulling her hand down because they're, they don't see fables and fairy tales. 
this is real, and what will happen to them will trickle down to us. And Eve reaches out, second try, she reaches out, grabs the fruit, takes a bite, and everybody goes quiet. And we start talking about the ramifications of the fall. See, in North America, modern medicine, some of the things that we've had, we've been successful at having some of the implications of that eradicated. But over there, when we first moved in, it was close to 25% of the girls died in childbirth. By pain, you will give birth. You're going to eat and you're going to have to work in the soil. That was every day for the Yembyembies. From the dust you came to the dust you will return, the promise Oh, that's brutal for the Yembies. When we bury people in Yembi Yembi, I'm convinced one of the things that Christians, churches should do more of, expose our children to what it's, what it's like to see people die, to take them to hospitals, to take them to funerals. There's an end to life. There's a seriousness. And in the tropics, it's brutal. And the Yembies, but the promise that comes in Genesis chapter 3, I'm going to send one someday. I'm going to send this one who is going to make things right between God and man again. There will be that one coming. And the Yembis held on to that promise when we were teaching. There's going to be one someday who's going to do this. And so we kept going through the Old Testament, and somebody would stand up whenever we'd introduce an Old Testament character, whether it was Abraham, Isaac, David, Solomon. Somebody would stand up and say, wait, 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 wait. Stop the talk. Stop the talk. Is he the one? Is he the one? It was such a great thing because the whole Old Testament is pushing for the one. That's the purpose of the Old Testament, the one who will make things right between God and man again. And finally, we get to the New Testament, and John the Baptist is standing there in John chapter 1. Uh, if you read it today, in John chapter 1, John the Baptist sees Jesus walking alongside the river Jordan, and he says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And we've got about seven Yemi-Yemis that stand up. Wait, 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 wait. Stop the talk. Stop the talk. That's their language. He, John, the one that John is speaking of, is he the one or are we waiting for another? You guys, it's a privilege in my life. I hope Ruthie gets to do it someday to say he's the one. He's the one who's going to make things right between God and man again. Oh, man, and the Yembies, again, they're not formal learners, and so they start yelling, stop the talk of John who dunks in water. We don't want to hear about him. Tell us about this guy. And to see them fall in love with Jesus, because Jesus came for people like the Yembi Yembies. Jesus didn't hang out at TGC conferences. He wasn't at the White House. He wasn't at centers of power, of political power, religious power. Jesus came for people like the Yembies. Like there's a natural inclination. He finds people. He touches people, people with leprosy, people, widows who have lost their only son, and he brings them back to life. And, oh, man, the excitement of the Yembies. Man, if, if Jesus was here, he, he'd fix your foot. And some of the guys who have different things wrong with them and some of the ladies whose backs are permanently, if Jesus was here, he'd do these types of things in this environment. And our guy's falling in love with Jesus. And then the day we got to present the gospel, we actually did the death, burial, and resurrection, acted them all out. And we had about 40 or 50 that day that understood who Jesus Christ was, that he had paid the price for their sins and made a way for them to be united with God again, no longer under the curse. We are free and we are children of the king now. And from those 40 and 50, how those 40 and 50 lived, how they died, the church continued to grow and grow and grow until it's over half the village now. 
I go back every year to check on the Yemby Church. I'll be going back in three months to check on them again just because they're still our babies. We still love them dearly. That's the church that by God's grace has been planted, and they're starting to reach out and send their own missionaries to other people groups. And so that's a little bit of the background that I'm speaking from today. If you've got your Bibles, uh, we're going to go over the passage that was the reading for today, Matthew 28. This is commonly called the Great Commission, and there are four instances of the Great Commission. Uh, There's, excuse me, five. There's one in Mark 16, there's one in John 20, there's one in Luke 24, there's one in Acts 1. So we've got five different places where the Great Commission is given, but we're going to focus on the one today that is the most encapsulated, it has the most detail to it, it's the one that is clearest, and that's found in Matthew 28, the last chapter of Matthew uh, and the final verses of the book. And so we're going to start in verse 16, and I'm going to pull four things out of this, then we'll jump to one other passage, and then we'll be done for the day. Matthew 28:16. now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So there's four things in here that I want to unpack that I think is really helpful for you guys as a young church, two and a half years old from what I understand, as a church to understand as you try to fulfill why Jesus left us on this earth. Why do churches exist? We exist for the glory of God, but we exist to accomplish a mission. That's where this, te- this passage gets its name from, the Great Commission what we're commissioned to do, what the church is about, not what individuals who get really excited about going overseas, what the church is commissioned to do, and that's this task. And so, number one that we see from this passage is we see that we are men and women under authority. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. What that means is, if you're a Christian, you're a person under authority. Your dreams your passions, your experiences, they all come under someone else. They come under a king. If you're, an, if you're a non-believer, if you're not a Christian, you can do whatever you want. You're a person without any authority over you. But if you're calling yourself a Christian, a Christ follower, you're a person under authority. And that's a, that's a different concept for North Americans today, to find that my passions don't rule me. My experiences don't tell me what to do. My God comes first and foremost. Most young people today are trying to find, okay, this is what I'm good at. These are my giftings. These are my passions. Now, how will I fit Jesus into that? And the king says the direct opposite is true. You're under my authority. If you're a Christian, Man, when I got to Papua New Guinea and I'm learning a language, again, I have an accounting background. I'm coming from a CFO background, and I didn't really get to use a lot of my giftings in the middle of the jungle. It's just not a great place for a guy with a bunch of financial background from Western Europe to apply himself. It's just not that way. When you look at the Bible, you look at it from the king's perspective, and the king says, if you're going to be one of my children, this is what I'm about. 
You're a person under authority. And then point number two, based on that authority, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Now, when we hear that word nation, I don't like to go into the whole Greek thing. One of my jobs on the team when I was over in New Guinea was I was the lead translator. So I translated all the Pauline epistles, all of the gospels except for Mark, and then I translated the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, most of those books. And so I translated all that stuff. And so to look at it and to understand from a translation background, nations, when Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations, it does not mean political nation states. It's not like Germany, Mexico, the United States. It means what it says in the Greek actually is pantata ethne. Ethne is the word that we get ethnicities from. That's where we draw this word called ethnicities from. So Jesus is saying, take the message about me to all ethnic groups. And if you dive down into what an ethnic group is, the number one factor for what makes up an ethnic group, head and shoulders, even an objective anthropological definition, language. Language is the defining mark of an ethnic group. And there are about 3,000, a little over 3,000 language groups left today that still have no gospel witness. And we look at this and we wonder why, why is that still the case? The majority go to places that are reached, but to get to those ethnic groups, the pontata ethne, the people groups that still have no gospel, that's going to take some sacrifice. When I was translating the book of Romans, I was in chapter 3, and my uh, translation helper's name is Tarangawi, and Tarangawi had a sharp mind. He was one of the quickest guys I've ever met. Um, Tarangawi, we're going through chapter 3 of Romans, and we ran up against a really difficult spot, and so I was using a modified literal, and then I had a few other versions of the Bible, so I grabbed one of the versions of the Bible, and I started opening up, and Tarangawi goes, wait, 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 what are you doing? I thought we were translating only from the Bible itself. What's this other book? And I said, Tarangawi, this is another version in my language. And Tarangawi goes, what? You have more than one version of this book in your language? And it just dawned on me right then, and I started to get nervous. And Tarangawi asked me the, the horrible question. He goes, how many versions do you have in your language? And I, I'll be honest with you. I, I lied. I said, Tarangawi, we've got about seven, seven or <laughs> maybe eight. And he, d he does what all Yembi Yembis do when they get surprised, when th something's so big. He goes, <coughs> and his head just goes down. I came back to the United States, and I started looking. And do you know how many versions there are in the English language? There's over 800 versions, 800 translations of the Bible in the English language. You get into the study Bibles, you're up into the thousands. Does God love the English-speaking world so much more than the rest of the world? Does He care about us? Are we some, some special people because we speak English? Or have we missed some common thing? One of the things that shocked me to no end was, you remember the disciples who became the apostles, 13 of them, so Judas drops out. Matthias takes his place, and then Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, you got 13 apostles. Of the 13 apostles, only one of them died in his home country, James. All the rest of them died in foreign countries. 
And as they're going, they're teaching and they're strengthening churches and they're planting churches. The apostles understood this so well, this was the mission of their life to the end of their days. Going to Libya, making it to Syria. Some of them made it to Russia. One of them made it to India. One of them made it as far as Spain. And they died in foreign countries. This is the commission that God gave to his followers. This is what we are about. The Bible knows nothing of Christians who don't care about those places that still don't have the gospel. We cannot be this type of people that stares only at our region of the world because sometimes it gets misread, it gets misapplied. Well, this is our Jerusalem. Judea is Southern California. Samaria is the United States and the ends of the earth, well, that's the real ends of the earth. But I'm about our Jerusalem here. That's a misreading of Acts chapter 1. There's a real physical Jerusalem. There's a real physical Judea. And by God's good grace, they have the gospel. What of the other places, the other languages that still have nothing? So it does not mean nations. It means ethnicities. And then number three, the primacy of the local church. This is probably the most lost one today. When Jesus says this in verse 20, he, does, he doesn't just stop at making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That's verse 20. That's the local church. When you teach them everything, you teach them about the local church. Churches are commanded to baptize new believers. Churches are commanded to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Churches regularly gather. Churches teach the Word of God. Churches raise up elders and deacons. This is what churches do. To make disciples is a great start. But if you don't gather those disciples into a church, those disciples will fall away at the end of their days. They'll end up dying, and the gospel will not go forward. Churches are the mechanism that God has instilled to ensure that the Great Commission gets accomplished. The means of the Great Commission is the local church, and the goal of the Great Commission is the local church. We go, we by God's grace see converts, we disciple those converts, and then we gather them into a local church. This was the model that Paul, that Peter, that James, that every one of the apostles modeled for us. And you can see this all through the book of Acts. And this is why long-term missions, church planting missions, take so long. Because it's like raising a child. My wife and I have one son. He's a 21-year-old. He goes to college up at Cal Baptist University in Riverside. Um, and to, to have a baby is infinitely easier than seeing a baby brought to maturity. Baby churches are like baby human beings. If they're not taught, if they're not protected, if they're not fed, they die. And so to see a local church brought to full maturity, you have to stay longer to see it grow, to see its own elders, its own deacons developed. That's why the length of planting churches takes so long and why uh, all things, teaching them all things that I have commanded you is the heartbeat of the Great Commission. And then finally, the task is measured in eternity. It says this at the end of verse 20, and behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. This task is measured in eternity. Some of you who know Ruth well, and by God's good grace, there will be other members from this church, from Savior Community Church, that will be raised up to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. This will not be a cost-free endeavor. 
probably the hardest times of my life in missions have been at LAX, saying goodbye, getting on those airplanes, going overseas, contracting malaria over a dozen times, getting boils, going through different challenges. The only way someone in a church commissions the ones that they love, the ones that they care about, and sends them well, the only way that this, this actually can be done is if you measure it in eternity. You measure it by eternal measurements. Because in this earth, it's not worth it. Better to keep Ruth here. Better to keep your members here. Keep them safe. Keep them comforted. Unless we're measuring things by eternity. If we measure them by eternal standards, if the God of heaven goes with us and he promises, I'll be with you to the end of the age. What a sweet promise. We don't go alone. You don't send your members and they go off on those airplanes by themselves. The God of creation, the God who changes everything at the snap of his fingers, whenever he chooses, that God gets on the airplane with them. We measure the Great Commission in eternity because all other measurements say it's not worth it. It is not worth it. I'm reminded one of the best books, man, if I could recommend a book for all teenage girls to read, Christian teenage girls, it would be the three Mrs. Judsons, the three capable women, uh, incredible scholars that were married to Adoniram Judson, who took the gospel for the first time uh, and took it around to... Uh, various places in India, then ended up landing uh, in Bangalore and just was this incredibly used by God instrument, but was thrown in jail for nine months, nearly died a few times. But each of his wives, uh, all three of them, or excuse me, two of them, went ahead of him into glory. And the occasion when the first two American girls were sent out from their church, one of them was Adniram's wife, Nancy. It's recounted in this book called The Three Mrs. Judsons, the book that I recommend. And this is the story. And catch what they're thinking here. This is the story of the day that they sent these two girls out. One of them was Nancy and her best friend. They were both getting on the boat to head over to Burma. And it says this, The same day the two girls attended a great meeting in the church in Haverhill. The church was jammed to the rafters with onlookers. Some were merely curious to see the first foreign American missionaries in person. But to most, the occasion was a heart-wrenching farewell to the two girls that they had seen grow up almost as members of their own family. The pastor, Pastor Parson Allen, delivered the sermon. The good old minister had known the two girls since infancy, many times visiting their house, and the dances that they were whirling about and flushed and happy and enjoying themselves brought to life. He spoke to them and said this, before the packed throng as if he were their loving father. My dear children, he told them, you are now engaged in the best of causes. It is the cause for which Jesus, the Son of God, came into the world and suffered and died. You literally forsake father and mother, brothers and sisters, for the sake of Christ and the promotion of his kingdom. He had words for the girl's parents and the congregation as well, but at the end of his discourse, he turned to the two girls, Nancy and Harriet, and he concluded in a voice nearly breaking, to the care of the great head of the church I now commit you. To his grave I also resign you. May he gather us someday, and may you return and come to Zion with a song, with shouts of everlasting glory. That was it. They took him from there, and they took him down to the boat, and they were nine months on a boat, and they made it to India, and eventually they made it to Burma. Harriet died on the voyage there. They buried her. 
right off the ship. Nancy kept Adoniram alive, kept the New Testament going, and then Nancy died. And they were, they were joined together someday in glory. The only way you measure this task and you say it's worth it is if heaven is real. If heaven's real, this is an incredible thing that you get the privilege to be involved in. The only way to measure the Great Commission and see value in it is to measure it in eternity. Last passage, Romans 10, if you've got your Bibles. Romans 10, verse 13. As we see Paul giving a synopsis of what the missionary task is, and I'll wrap up with this. <clears throat> Paul says this in Romans 10, verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him of whom they have not believed, and how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Paul's asking a series of rhetorical questions. Rhetorical questions are questions everybody knows the answer to. We all know that no one can believe in a God that they've never heard of. And no one can believe in this God unless someone preaches to them. Dreams are great. Dreams don't lead people to salvation. Dreams lead people to other people who do know the gospel message. Tracks are wonderful. We still have to have somebody to preach. But then he says this one spot or in verse 15, and this is the part that I think is special for you guys as the church body. It says this, and how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. They can't understand unless someone preaches to them, but the preachers can't go unless someone sends them, unless a local church sends them. This is where we get this idea. John Piper, synopsis, or he, he puts this in a great synopsis. You have three options when it comes to the Bible and missions. If you believe this book to be true, the Bible, you can be a goer, you can be a sender, or you can be a disobeyer. There's no fourth category. You're a goer, you're a sender, or you're a disobeyer. If this book is true. And for senders to be radical senders... For you guys to be, to be involved, not just writing checks, but to, to visit, to send packages, to know why your members are going through the various steps that they're going to have to go through. When um, William Carey, he's the first missionary to go to India, went to India, him and his friends were sitting around and they were get, thinking through how this was going to happen. And they came up with an analogy, and the analogy was this. They said that Carey was like somebody going down a deep, dark well. And Carrie was going to go down, and Carrie says, I'll go down the well if you'll hold the rope. And Carrie was thinking of the guys who were his home church, the leaders of his home church, that they were holding the rope. And I, I honestly believe this, that I think someday when the king returns, the king's going to ask the people who go down the well, show me your hands. Show me what it costs you to take the gospel to these places, to these languages that have never heard of my name. But the people at the top of the rope... The army, probably about 90% of you, maybe 10% by God's grace, may end up being goers. But about 90% of you, this is the average for churches in America, are going to be senders by God's good grace. And when the king returns and he asks, show me your hands, what did it cost you? Not what did it cost the church, you as an individual, to send the members of Savior Community Church to the ends of the earth. Because we all have a part to play in this. I praise God for Dave Johnson from my home church, who's in heaven today, 
but he had, he had a little travel agency, and he helped us get tickets. He helped us find the best deals. He didn't pay for them, but he helped us. He used his business to help us get to the field. And then for, man, dear servants like Shirley Friedman and Marv Friedman, who helped our son when he came back and was needing some different things, and they would send us packages. And every, every three months, I knew that I was going to get a package from Shirley Friedman, and it'd have Tapatio hot sauce in it. We couldn't get Tapatio in Papua New Guinea. I love Tapatio. It's like nectar of the gods. But not Cholula. Cholula is ridiculous. But to, like, to be a good sender. And Shirley Friedman's in heaven. Some, or she's in heaven right now. What will it be like when the king comes and he asks for you? What kind of senders will you be? Because I think we're all goers or we're senders or we're in that third category, the disobeyers. I'm going to close with this story. Uh, when we were in Yembe, we presented the gospel, and after we presented the gospel, two weeks after that, um, the Yembe's came up and they visited our house at night. And so our house was built on these huge posts. Um, they were about like this big, and there was rows of them. And so we built this house, and they were built like their houses. Their houses have the same thing. But what happened, because they helped us build the house, they knew, okay, this is where they bake their food. This is where Nina teaches uh, Bo how to read and write in English. And this is where they sleep. And so they could walk under our house because it was eight feet off the ground. And they had this long pole that if they ever needed to wake me up at night, they would hit the bottom of the floor. And our house was, it had bark walls, and then the floor was plywood, three-quarter inch plywood. And so they would hit the bottom of the floor, and you thought, I mean, it was Armageddon or something. You would be sleeping, and just boom, the bottom of the floor would bounce, and your head would bounce off the floor. And so they'd wake me up. And so sure enough, two weeks after we present the gospel, boom, boom, bottom of the floor goes crazy. And so I go out to the, uh, the window, and I yell out there, and I go, who is it? And it's a typical Yembe response. They go, it's me, it's me. I know it's you. What's your name? Oh, it's me, your tribal father. Oh, well, this is a big deal because, again, we were adopted into clans, and my tribal father doesn't come up for no reason. And so we go outside, and in Yembe Yembe, it's really rude to take your flashlight and to shine it on somebody's face because it ruins their night vision. So you shine it on their feet, and they can recognize all thousand of them. They can recognize everybody based off of their feet. Of course, they can recognize me, but I can't recognize anybody. And so I'm working the flashlight up to the kneecaps, and then I recognize the shorts, and I recognize that guy's belly button. And there's about seven of them there. And I realize these are all seven who have given a clear profession of faith. These are Christians. And these seven believers are there, and my tribal father is the spokesman for them, and he goes, Eldest white son, that's what he calls me. Eldest white son, I'm his only white son, but anyways. He goes, he goes eldest white son, uh, we wanted to know when we're going. And I said, what do you mean? Well, if what the book says is true, our sister village across the way, Changriman, that doesn't have the gospel, they're going to the place of fire, right? Yeah, that's true. So when are we going? Will it be tomorrow or will it be the next day? When are we going to the places that haven't heard this talk yet? Two weeks old in the faith. First impulse, when are we going? Guys, when we first came back, I, we came back to the United States in 2016. We had a church, and then more recently, a really wealthy businessman asked, could we fly over the YMBMB elders and their wives for our missions conference? We'll pay for everything. And we wouldn't do it. We'll never do it. Because number one, it would blow their world apart. To see the freeways, to see Costco, would just, it, would, it would just kill them. 
But number two is this, and I told the wealthy businessman, I, I told him this, I said, brother, you don't know what you're asking for. Because the Yembies, again, remember, the Yembies are the ones who stand up, and if they don't like what you're saying, they'll yell during church, enough, I'm going to throw this talk up. Today, when elders are getting trained, when young guys are standing up in front of the pulpit, if they start to divert from Scripture, the mamas in the church will yell, the canoe's turning, the canoe's turning, and the poor guy's just going to get assaulted. That's what happens from the Yembies. And if the Yembies came back for a missions conference and they stood up in front of everybody, their first question would be, how long have you had this talk? How long have you known about this? When are you going? When are you going to the places that still haven't heard? Guys, that would be my, my strong endorsement to you. Raise up your sons and daughters well. Raise up the ones in your body who may be your goers. And if you're going to be the senders, be radical senders. Be the type of church to where when we look back in 50, 100 years, the legacy of what comes out of this church, someday, not on this earth, but in the earth to come, that's something. That's something that you can live, that you can die for. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for sending your son, for making a way for us to be united again with you. We thank you that you have not left us alone, that you have promised wherever we go, you will be with us to the end of the age. Father, raise up from this congregation many who would take your message to the ends of the earth, to the last places, to the last languages that still know nothing of you. There are no worshipers there, Father, so therefore we go so that your name will be glorified in all the earth. We look forward to the day when you return. Come quickly, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen.